As a caregiver, what I would say is you are stronger than you could ever imagine, and you may not know it at the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Well, November is National Family Caregivers Month, an opportunity to celebrate the family caregivers in our community and reflect on ways we can do more to support them. According to the National Alliance of Caregivers, 53 million Americans provided unpaid care to an adult with a healthcare or functional need in 2020. That translates to about one in five Americans. And those caregivers who provide care out of love and often talk about the rewards of serving as a caregiver are also struggling. According to that survey from National Alliance of Caregivers, 26% of caregivers say they have difficulty coordinating care and 21% say that they're worried that their own health is poor. These challenges, of course, are echoed in some of the caregivers we have been fortunate enough to talk to on this show. With that in mind, joining me this week to help kick off a month to celebrate, honor, and find new ways to support family caregivers in the ALS community is Steve Beckvar, Executive Director of the ALS Association, Greater San Diego Chapter. Steve, thanks so much for joining us this week. Jeremy, honored to be with you on Connecting ALS for such an important topic, obviously celebrating and honoring all the amazing caregivers that provide immeasurable support. You know, San Diego is really working hard to try to, you know, provide gaps and provide support during this very critical time. Uh, the last two years have been challenging and I think still opportunities abound during this time. Yeah, I want to get into some of the ways that, that the pandemic kind of shifted the approach or, or kind of, you know, added to the complications of supporting caregivers. You know, Steve, I was looking across the community of caregiver groups uh, and, and noticed that the Caregiver Action Network is promoting a campaign that encourages caregivers to celebrate all the things they are in addition to their role as caregiver. And that's through a social media campaign called Caregiver And, that is hashtag caregiver and. And the idea being is this person is a caregiver and they have hobbies that help them unwind. They may be pursuing careers that they're struggling to juggle in addition to the demands of providing care for their loved ones. Steve, I don't know about you, but I, I really I really love the the kind of the scope and the the, the direction of that campaign. You know, it's incredible. Uh, we we all know that May is ALS Awareness Month. And I think this focus and attention to November as caregiver you know, support month and, and what we can do to really provide some awareness and again, support the caregivers that support our ALS patients. You know, I started as the executive director seven years ago and one of our board members brought me aside and said, Steve, you know, listen, my mom, ALS, but, you know, the priority is going to be the patient, but really closely tied to the patient is the caregiver. So please, you know, focus on them as well. And I'll never forget that conversation. And then I didn't realize to the extent, uh, Jeremy, you know, these last seven years, again, how important the caregiver is. And we got to care for the caregiver in this process. And, and that was seven years ago. And it, that conversation has stood with me. And we take that very serious. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm always struck by when I when I have the opportunity to talk to a caregiver, how much of their energy and focus in those conversations is focused on the the, the care and the well being uh, of their loved one. 
you know, Steve, we talked about some of those broad national caregiver data points, but those are reflected in the ALS Focus Program, which recently asked caregivers about their experiences. And, and as part of that survey, they asked caregivers about their top concerns. You know, and the most common, about 61% of respondents said it was their family and loved one's well-being. Another 56% listed worries about the future. 52% were concerned about lacking time to relax or engage in self-care. 44% worried about depression, and 35% worried about participating less in enjoyable activities like hobbies. Uh, I'm curious, you, you talk about some of your interactions with caregivers. Do those data points track with your experience interacting with caregivers on the ground? Well, I'll tell you, Jeremy, those numbers are astonishing, but I would also tell you, yes, on the ground, rubber meets the road. You know, we recently had our walk to defeat ALS, and it was um, you know, again, walk your way. We weren't gathered up at one single location. And I had a chance to spend time with one of our families. And, you know, this gentleman's been living with ALS for over 10 years. And his wife is extremely supportive, almost to the point where the things that you mentioned impact her daily well-being as a caregiver. You know, there were family and friends at the walk. There were neighbors at the walk. And they expressed to me the same things that you're talking about how we can support her to support him, but also him having ALS needs to, to be a little more aware himself on the toll it's kind of taking on his, on his spouse, the primary caregiver. So we've got a little plan put together to help her help him. And I gotta tell you all the things that you just mentioned in terms of those uh, you know, specific dynamics relevant to depression slash lack of sleep, on and on is something we're dealing with. And this is an example that I, I'm giving you uh, that is very recent, but has been ongoing. So, you know, the, the, the caregiver, you know, you can see it, you can feel it when you're doing a home visit, when you're spending time, we need to do everything we can to give them the support that they need. But I would also say the patient, you know, being a little flexible in the process too. And I'm just giving you one example, Jeremy, but, you know, we've got to support the caregiver who can provide exceptional care, but if they're not being supported themselves, then the care is not going to be what it could be. You know, I, I, having interacted with caregivers, not, not only in the ALS community, but in, in other caregiver communities, I, I sense some, at times, a hesitancy to ask for help. And, you know, for people that are in the community, what are some things that I can do to support a caregiver that's in my community? Or, or somebody listening at home might be able to say like, well, gosh, I'd love to help out. What can I do? You know, it's, it's listening and, and, and hearing them and reacting as such. Everyone's going to be a little bit different, how they accept it, how they accept support. You know, the patient plays a role in this too, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but the caregiver is going to give signs. And if it's being a listening ear, if it's providing some respite, if it's going to the store, if it's providing some sense of relief for that particular situation, um, there's a lot of signals that the caregiver will give. And then sometimes they don't. And you kind of have to surround them with friends and neighbors and support. You know, the chapter, we do what we can. In San Diego, we have closely, you know, 200 ALS patients and families that we work with, and we're a staff of five. And so there's, you know, we can guide and provide, and we do have seven support group meetings a month if hopefully one of those fits. You know, the ALS uh, patient and caregiver in this case, um, they are emotional meetings, they are technical meetings, and, and hopefully one of those fits. But I think, again, surrounding one with neighbors and friends and family 
and being a really good listener in this process, I think is critical to their needs. Yeah, and finding those opportunities to provide respite care. You, you know, you mentioned doing maybe doing a grocery run. Um, this comes to mind. I'm thinking of the grocery run in particular. It makes me think of that some of the challenges that we've all encountered over the last couple of years through the pandemic, through some of the quarantine rules. How has that changed the way we're able to support or the opportunities to support caregivers? You know, such a good point. You know, the last year and a half, two years, our chapter specifically created an outreach program where we delivered over 700 hot meals, fruit and vegetable boxes, cases of water with notes written by volunteers and chapter staff to show encouragement. Oh, you know, wow. our, our entire team, Jeremy, was involved in, in providing and supporting and dropping off these items. And of course, it, it meant not really going into the house for safety reasons. We had volunteers assist and help in the process as well. But when the caregiver, in many cases, were the ones that answered the door, you could see it in their eyes and you could tell that there was definitely support and appreciation for the fact that we would take the time to show up carefully, six foot distance, drop off a meal, give them letters of encouragement and, and spend time where we could. You know, volunteers, we didn't ask them to spend time, but to make the drop off. But in many cases, our volunteers would come back and express the communication and feedback that they received. And I think just by showing support and being there and, and providing, yeah, you know, a physical opportunity with a meal, but more the emotional showing up and saying, hey, we're here for you, meant a lot. And you could tell on those drop-offs on the outreach. But, you know, I think, again, you know, what we've seen is, is neighbors step up, friends step up, our chapter doing what we can. And, of course, you can imagine how many virtual meetings, you know, have taken sure. place and learning kind of the capabilities of our, our community in terms of iPads or cell phones or, you know, computers that have the kind of technology to communicate, but nothing like being there in person. I am also proud to say that, you know, fortunately that we didn't have any reported COVID of our ALS community that came forward. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but nothing that came to, to our attention. We've asked and no COVID issues uh, during this last year and a half, two years. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. Well, Steve, I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with Ann Larson, a longtime warrior in the fight against ALS, who served as the caregiver to her husband during his fight against the disease. Let's hear from Ann now. Well, Ann, thank you so much for being with us this week. Oh, Jeremy, thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, well, it's really nice to have you here. I, you know, I think Family Caregiver Awareness Month is such an inspirational time of the year for the ALS community. So really looking forward to kind of capturing and sharing your story with listeners. So to kick things off, Anne, can you take a moment and just introduce yourself to listeners and, and give us a sense of your connection to ALS? Certainly, certainly. Well, my name is Ann Larson, and my husband, Dave Larson, was diagnosed with ALS in his mid-40s. Dave was a very active, athletic, energetic uh, husband and father. He grew up uh, playing soccer. He was a Division I soccer player. Um, he was a super involved dad. He was a coach. He was a scout leader. At the time, our boys were 12 and 15 years old and were just really caught off guard. And we started to embark on a journey that profoundly changed our lives. Yeah, we've heard from so many people that we've had the privilege to talk to on this show about that sense of shock upon the diagnosis. Uh, and, and once you had confirmation of the diagnosis, how long was the journey from there? Well, when we had confirmation, it was about three years. So we knew something was wrong 
you know, prior to that. And, you know, getting confirmation was um, both like a, a relief and a blow at the same time. Yeah. And I'll never forget um, coming out of the hospital. We knew, we knew what they were going to say eventually. And I remember coming out of the hospital and um, getting in the car and coming out of the parking garage and he was driving and we didn't say a word, not, not one word to each other. And I remember coming down the ramp and looking around at all of the busy things taking place around the hospital. I remember seeing a woman in a, in a lab coat cross the street. I remember seeing two other younger professionals waiting near the bus stop. And you just start to think, wow, they're just going about their day. And um, I think our, our life just, you know, just ended as we know it. Right. You, you mentioned that uh, I think for six years ago, your journey as your time as a caregiver came to an end. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like transitioning from being a caregiver uh, into the next day, the next week? What, what was that process like? It's kind of surreal, though the patient, you know, is locked into their home and their body. In some ways, the caregiver is as well. And, you know, I, the last several months didn't leave the house with him. And, you know, when you did, it was really hard. It was, it was a big deal. So we ended up receiving a lot of visitors, but not leaving the house so much. And I had a, a great network of support. And I remember about four or five days after he passed away, I had a prescription ready at Walgreens. And, you know, my mind went automatically to, oh, I should call my mother-in-law and see if she'll pick that up. She often did for me. And then I stopped and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I, I can just go get it. Like I can go get the keys to the car and just go. And then I remember my second thought was, well, I think I need a purse or a wallet or something like, where do I have one of those? (laughs) It's been so long since I was able to go out. I mean, I really didn't take my eyes off of him. I had a camera on him when he would be, you know, in his um, wheelchair. He he was on his Toby a lot, communicating with the outside world um, uh, in that way. But I, if I went to the back of the house, I would carry an iPad with me. So it just in case his, you know, his neck gave out or his head fell over. I was so worried about him, you know, choking or so like, you're so used to just being so aware, you know, like and and on call and on alert. So that was a, a, a really odd feeling. And, you know, I also, you, I have to retrain yourself. I, I the last several months prior to his death, I, I know I slept from 1.30 to 5 a.m. And I slept with one eye open watching the numbers on his trilogy. I, yeah. that's just what I did between, you know, 1.30 and 5 in the morning. And it was just so um, different to think, okay, like, I can to try and teach yourself to sleep again, right? Yeah. So, and I yeah. ended up, and you know, walking around the house a lot. 
you know, the things you think of while you're trying to sleep, like what if the house catches on fire? How do you get him out of here? You know? So you start to concoct these plans. And I used to try, I used to make him try to make him laugh all the time. He was very, very funny guy. So um, he always appreciated that. But I remember, you know, thinking about that. And one day I woke up, you know, and he told me morning, Hey, I came up with this plan. Like if the house catches on fire, here's what we're going to do. And I'm going to have a sliding glass door in the bedroom. I said, now get ready. Cause I'm going to pick up that mattress and I'm pulling you across this floor and out the door. Now there's two steps. So, you know, we might bang your head a little bit up <laughs> as we get down into the grass, but you'll be okay. And he would giggle, you know, and smile. And I remember after he passed away, like walking around down the hall at like 5.30 in the morning and everything was so quiet. And I thought, and there was this song at the time that came out the year his death. Um, I think it was by a country singer named Cam. And um, it was like, I had a dream about a burning house. You were stuck oh. inside. I couldn't get you out, you know? And I would just walk up and down the halls and cry, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I remember also one night, it, it affects everybody, not just you, you know? So sure. I woke up to take my nightly middle of the night walk. And my son was up in his bedroom painting the trim. It's like mm. 1230 in the morning. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like painting the trim. <laughs> yeah. He's up, you know, and you, I, you start to think about that and start to talk about it. And it's like, there's so many things about ALS that changes your life that you can't control, that you do really weird things that you can control. You know, so I think him like, well, can't sleep, but you know, I can paint the trim in my room right now. <laughs> yeah. And um, so there are all these crazy things that a caregiver and their family goes through as you like kind of come back to, or you, you, I don't think you ever come back to what your life was before, but you know, as you try to find some sense of normalcy again, you know, and uh at talking to you, I reflect back, uh, the, the ALS focus survey recently, uh, looked into some of the challenges and some of the shared experiences of caregivers in the ALS community. And, and one of the things that really kind of came home to me about that was just the level of stress that caregivers face on a day-to-day basis and throughout their journey as caregivers. Uh, is that something that you can reflect upon looking back on your experience? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can. You know, I think as caregivers, we do anything to make our pals more comfortable, to see them smile, you know, to bring a little bit of joy to their life. And sometimes it's really, really hard because we have so many emotions going on inside of ourselves, how our families changed, how our lives changed, how you know, we're just going to, we know what's coming and we're going to miss them so much. And, you know, the, the, the exhaustion and the sleep and, you know, he could no longer eat. And I remember I didn't want him to smell food. So I would like eat a hard boiled egg and I would go inside the laundry room. So he didn't know I was eating because, you know, I felt guilty. And, uh, you know, I remember one specific time that I really lost it. So if you're a caregiver out there, you know, it's okay sometimes to lose it. It was 
probably about three weeks or four weeks before he passed away. So he passed away on October 31st. So it was maybe early October and the weather was changing and it was getting cool, uh, pretty cool. And I remember that particular day was really ugly. It was raining sideways and I had these tomato plants and I hadn't been able to tend to my garden in a long time. So they were like, wild bushes of tomatoes. And I remember walking out of the sliding glass door in the bedroom into the rain and I didn't want him to see me. I mean, he was in the bed and I, and I had a caregiver there on that particular morning. Someone that came in a couple hours in the morning and I looked at her and I said, you know, kind of gave her a head nod and said, I'll be right back. And I walked out into the rain. It was freezing cold. And I looked over on the side of the house and there was a baseball bat, one of my kids' bats. And I picked it up and I walked to the back of the garden and I just started hammering the snot out of tomatoes one after another. They were just flying like crazy. And, you know, it wasn't enough to kill every last tomato on the vine. But then I started smashing the chicken wire and the rain got harder and it was colder and I was crying. And after I got that all out of me, I calmly turned around sat down the bat, walked around the house so he wouldn't see me, went in the side door, down the basement, took a shower as I was a complete wreck after that, covered in tomatoes and tears, <laughs> and um, came back up and put on my smile and carried on. I can't think of a more empowering message than it's okay to lose it sometimes. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. And, and you're still very engaged in, in the fight against ALS. Can you talk to me a little bit about striking that balance between finding that new sense of normalcy, but you know, staying engaged in, in the community that has built up during your time, you know, during your time as a caregiver of, with ALS, during your husband's time fighting the disease? I, I've made the decision to always be engaged in fighting ALS or advocating for patients' rights or just flat out helping an ALS patient in some way. I think right after he passed away, I wanted to run so far away from ALS. You know, I, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to see it. It had robbed us of enough of our life. Yeah. And you do that. It's like, I just, I got to stop. But then, you know, you, um, or at least I, in my case, I look back and I think, you know, you got to keep fighting that fight. It's so hard and so unfair to patients and their families that you got to try to make it better for everyone that follows you. And um, so I, you know, have made the decision to stay dedicated in whatever way I can, whether it's participating in Advocacy Day in Washington or sharing a story with podcasts or raising money or attending events. We mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that we are here in Family Caregiver Awareness Month. What advice would you have for someone who, who may be at the beginning of their journey as a, a caregiver for someone living with ALS? What, what, what tips or what, what grand advice would you give them who may be listening at home? Oh boy. Um, it's hard because everybody's journey is different. So sure, I, yeah. I, I don't know if what I would say to somebody would fit into their lifestyle. I, I think as a caregiver, what I would say is you are stronger than you could ever imagine. And you may not know it at the time. You know, there were every, every milestone that we hit, like um, 
oh boy, you know, we need to get, you know, a, a catheter. And I thought, you know, people would say, oh, you need to learn to change that catheter, you know, that is like a surgical, surgical one that was that kind of went through your, your stomach. And I would think, oh my God, there's no way I could ever do that. Like if that time comes, I can't do that. And, you know, the next thing I know, not only, you know, like you just take a deep breath, not only can you change that catheter, <laughs> but, um, you know, you're doing it in the living room while you're cracking jokes and talking to, you know, your son and, you know, same thing with the feeding tube. Like at the end, you know, here I am changing a feeding tube, a Mickey tube in the living room and things I never thought I could do that next milestone. And I would say to caregivers, you can, you can handle it. Such an empowering message uh, to, to close on. And before I let you go, any other thoughts um, as, as we sit here and reflect on the role of caregivers and ways to make the healthcare system that supports people with ALS and those affected by the disease better? Don't be afraid to use your resources. Use all of your resources. So it's so nice to listen to some of the prior members of your podcast and you have patient advocacy organizations on. Reach out to those organizations. They're so important. I know that um, when my husband was first diagnosed, very beginning, you know, we were given information about the ALS Association. We were like, okay, we don't need that now. Like, we don't need that now. And I, I think everybody, a lot of people feel like that way at first because you're kind of in shock. Well, we then got involved with the ALS organization and um, our association, and they became such great resources and friends of ours. They became such an important part of our life and helped us in so many ways. Um, so I would say use those wonderful resources out there. So important. Uh, caregiver support and, and support for people living with ALS. Uh, we will share resources in the show notes. Uh, and thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. And thank you for bringing this podcast to the community. It's so very important for everyone. Well, Steve, so great to hear from Anne. And, and you had talked earlier about some of the ways that, that we as individuals and as an association can support caregiver. And a big way is through those support groups you talked about in coordinating respite care. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that support groups play in supporting caregivers? Sure. You know, again, uh, Jeremy, we have seven monthly support group meetings, you know, some of which are more emotional based. Some are, you know, educational opportunities to learn about mobility or home safety or, you know, other aspects of, of uh, ALS and understanding of the offerings, I guess, the chapter can provide and, and how we can support them through the journey. You know, we also wanted to mention have a partnership, for example, with the ADAPT Functional Movement Center here in San Diego, who also provide great emotional and, and physical support in the sense of, you know, working out from home and, and adapting to your home environment and exercising and, and also providing, again, emotional support, not only for the patient, but for the caregiver as well. And so we're pretty blessed, you know, in San Diego to have those kinds of opportunities. Now, I you know, before the pandemic, Jeremy, we would have lots of different events. Of course, San Diego with the weather, and yeah, we're, we're fortunate to have a lot of outside activities that we would encourage our patients and families to attend. A great chance and opportunity for caregivers to meet other caregivers, patients to meet other patients, I think critical in that process. You know, we've missed, for example, our Walk to Defeat ALS, which we deem our biggest support group event of the year, has been 
you know, kind of a walk your way concept, not one location where we can all gather up. And that has always led to great kind of communication amongst our community and relationships build and develop. So, you know, we, we, we've, yeah, it's been a challenge the last two years, uh, not being able to connect the patient and families like we would like to. But I think these areas like the ADAPT Functional Movement Center allow for us to, to be able to connect our, our community and we've seen good results. Yeah, making those connections, you know, specific this to this month and this topic between caregivers so important because one of the things that we hear in some of the survey data and some of the conversations that I've been able to have is this concern about, I don't know what's around the corner. I, I don't know what comes next. And and maybe you meet somebody through what these support groups or these opportunities to network who is six months ahead of you on the journey and can talk you through, hey, I went through that too. This sharing of information and, and, and sharing of different parts on the journey that can really come through on that. And with that in mind, I also had an opportunity this week to sit down with Jennifer Myrie about some of the work her chapter up in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota is doing to relieve caregiver stress. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. One of the highlights I think of the year is is Family Caregivers Month and an opportunity to really reflect on the role that caregivers play and, and ways that we can support them even better. But before we get into all that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do for the association? Yes, I have been with the ALS Association. I just hit my 14-year mark. Oh, wow. And I'm a care services coordinator at the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. And my background is in social work. And I wear a lot of different hats, but some of the main things that I spend my time doing are facilitating support groups and managing our respite program for family caregivers. Respite care, something that we've talked about a lot on this show and uh, something that we're going to dig into in a moment. But, uh, you know, for starters, this may seem obvious, you know, being a caregiver almost by definition is stressful. But what are some of the causes of stress that you encounter amongst uh, the, the caregivers that you interact with? Yeah, I would say one of the things is just the amount of physical, mental, and emotional work it is to be a caregiver, uh, particularly of somebody with ALS who is progressing in their disease. Also, I would say navigating the balance of trying to, as much as possible, be in the present moment, but also navigating the preparedness that people, uh, often caregivers, feel like they need to have So kind of one foot into the present and one foot into the future can be really stressful for people, understandably. Caregivers often talk about the stress of not knowing what's going to happen with their loved one and their their loved one's disease process. Uh, We know that ALS progresses, but we don't know how it progresses. It's different for each person. And so that inability to know for sure is stressful. And then I would say the other thing that comes to mind is just that feeling of being alone. ALS is not all that common. And so people who are caregiving for someone with ALS often feel like nobody really understands what they're going through. You know, you talk about the uncertainty and just speaking on a personal level, I don't do well with uncertainty. It's something that I think most people 
like to know what's around the corner. And it is something that we hear a lot from, from caregivers. And it, it comes out in, in things like the ALS Focus Survey, where uncertainty about the future is, is a big concern that is, is voiced frequently. So what do we do about it? What are some ways that caregivers can manage some of the stresses, overcome some of the challenges, and, and deal with some of those uncertainties? Well, one of the things that we talk with families about is ALS clinics. Attending an ALS-specific clinic is really one of the best ways to get help managing the disease and to be able to understand, maybe not necessarily the exact future, but understanding what one needs to do in order to prepare for what is coming next. I would say connecting with other caregivers is a helpful way to manage stress. Attending a, a specific or a caregiver-specific support group is very helpful for people so that they can not only share what's going on with them, they can get practical advice from other caregivers. It deals with some of that isolation you talked about too. I would imagine that you know somebody who maybe is six months ahead of you on the journey can say, I know what you're going through, or I've been there, or you, know, you have somebody that um, just kind of understands the journey that you're on. Absolutely. You mentioned support groups, uh, and, and I know that you manage several. Um, what are they like, and, and how have they changed during the pandemic? Well, like most things, our support groups went from meeting in person primarily to meeting all virtually. And so what that has meant is a real adjustment in how we get together in a space and um, getting used to navigating some of the technology that that comes with. I would say that it has been a more inclusive way to offer a support group meeting for caregivers who may feel stress about leaving their loved one alone, they don't need to do that in order to attend a support group. For families who live in the far corners of our service area, they don't have to get in a car and and travel to a support group meeting. So those are some ways that certainly I feel like it's been beneficial. You know, we've heard that in different uh, settings as we've talked to folks during the pandemic, whether it's telemedicine or, you know, you talk about support groups, how it does expand the footprint and make it easier to reach people, as you said, in in some of the maybe distant outposts. Um, Will be interesting to see the way that uh, virtual components of of a support group stay with us going forward, even as we are increasingly able to get together person to person. Jennifer, you mentioned respite care. I never like to assume that everybody knows all the words uh, and all the concepts. So what is respite care and what role does it play in supporting caregivers? Respite care is a way to provide a break to the caregiver of someone with ALS. It's a way to support a caregiver in sustaining the caregiving that they're providing. And the way our chapter does that, for the most part, is we pay a home care agency to send a professional caregiver into the home so that the family caregiver can step away. So what does that look like for caregivers? They get, you know, we provide respite care. 
how does that look on the ground for the caregiver who's the recipient of respite care? Yeah, well, what we see and hear about is family caregivers feeling like they can take a breath, feeling like they can step away from their usual day-to-day and focus on something outside of that. So that might be an appointment for themselves. That might be continuing to get together with a biking group and get out and go on a ride. It might be going to get caught up with family members that they haven't seen in a while. So we get feedback that it has been an enriching opportunity for people. So for many, it's just a rest. Yeah, and something we all need from time to time. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time this week. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. Special thanks to our guests this week, Steve Beckvar, Executive Director of the ALS Association's Greater San Diego Chapter, and to Ann Larson and Jennifer Myrie. Mentioned a couple times in this episode, the ALS Focus Survey. I wanted to make sure listeners were aware that the current survey on mobility challenges and ways to improve access to and cost of mobility devices, that is open. We will share a link to how you can get involved in the ALS Focus in the show notes. That is going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, please find an opportunity to rate and review us. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. Bye.